Hey, how's it going, y'all? Oh, yeah, that's good. Welcome to the show. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm an anti-government extremist, and I want for you to hate the government as much as I do, which should be pretty easy to demonstrate all the great reasons why. Uh, you know, anyway. But yeah, so it's my show. Uh, today on the show, Charlotte Silver is going to be on to talk about um, the occupation of Palestine by Israel. This one is at the Electronic Intifada. Israeli court refuses to let dying hunger striker go. And find out all about that here in just a little while. And then Dan Sanchez is going to be on. And he's going to be talking about well, yeah, also Israel, but not so much the uh, occupied territories as much as Israel's relationship with the rest of the Middle East. In this case, particularly Syria, but... Oh, there's so much chaos to expedite and to document. And I was thinking you know, on the show yesterday with Joe Loria, he says, oh, yeah, well, you know, the Israeli role, he had a couple things to say about it, but then he says, you know, that's really a whole different subject matter. But anyway, back to my train of thought, which was about Saudi Arabia, that kind of thing. And we never really got back to Israel's role in what's going on in Syria. But Dan Sanchez has written quite a bit of good stuff about that, including his latest at antiwar.com, which is called Israel in Syria, Plan B is to balkanize. And so we'll be discussing that with the great Dan Sanchez from antiwar.com on the show today as well. And then, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know, man. Uh, I was listening through my iTunes playlist on Random this morning, and it landed on this one. It's a couple of clips I mashed together out of uh, Jammin' in New York, George Carlin, Jammin' in New York from 1992, and that's the one that you may... Uh, remember, begins with his uh, complete and total destruction of the credibility of Bush Sr.'s war in uh, Iraq, the first Gulf War. I got this real moron thing I do. It's called thinking. And I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions, he said. If you haven't seen that, well, it'll help fix your brain some. Well, this is not that clip. This is from later... In the same episode, jamming in New York. Yeah, I don't know, man. I understand how you people are with your feelings and stuff like that. Sometimes it can be real hard to wrap your heart around the truth of the matter. Eh, you know, and sometimes hearing it in a funny way from somebody like George Carlin can help uh, break through. Um, just in terms of like setting you at ease, you know, making it okay. But also, the other thing about Carlin is that you pretty much know when you're listening to him that he knows. He's not just a comedian. He's George Carlin. He's got real wisdom. And you can't really argue with it. And this is, God help me, I'm sorry. It's, uh, and I, sh you know, obviously he's an atheist. Uh, it's censored. I had to cut the F's out to play it on the radio, and I know that's ridiculous, but anyway, here it is. We like war. We're a warlike people. We like war because we're good at it. And you know why we're good at it? Because we get a lot of practice. This country's only 200 years old, and already we've had 10 major wars. We average a major war every 20 years in this country, so we're good at it. 
And it's a good thing we are. We're not very good at anything else anymore. Huh? Can't build a decent car. Can't make a TV set or a VCR worth the f***. Got no steel industry left. Can't educate our young people. Can't get health care to our old people. But we can bomb the shit out of your country, all right? Huh? We can bomb the shit out of your country, all right? Especially if your country is full of brown people. Oh, we like that, don't we? That's our hobby. That's our new job in the world, bombing brown people. Iraq, Panama, Grenada, Libya, you got some brown people in your country. Tell them to watch the f*** out or we'll goddamn bomb them. Well, when's the last white people you can remember that we bombed? Can you remember the last white? Can you remember any white people? We've ever bombed. The Germans, those are the only ones. And that's only because they were trying to cut in on our action. They wanted to dominate the world. Bull that's our job. That's our job. Now we only bomb brown people. Not because they're trying to cut in on our action, just because they're brown. By the way, speaking of American values, aren't we about due to start bombing some small country that only has a marginally effective air force? Seems to me like we're weeks overdue to drop high explosives on helpless civilians. People who have no argument with us whatsoever. I think we ought to be out there doing what we do best, gang, making large holes in other people's countries. I hate to be repetitious, but we are a warlike lot. We can't stand it not to be with somebody. We couldn't wait for that Cold War to be over, could we? Couldn't wait for the Cold War to be over so we can go and play with our toys in the sand. Go and play with our toys in the sand. And when we're not invading some sovereign nation or setting it on fire from the air, which is more fun for our Nintendo pilots, then, then we're usually declaring war on something here at home. Did you ever notice that about us? We love to declare war on things here in America. Anything we don't like about ourselves, we declare war on it. We don't do anything about it. We just declare war on it. It's the only metaphor, the only metaphor we have in our public discourse for solving problems, declaring war. Yeah, he's right. The only problem is all that uh, very generous use of the word we. But he really was talking about the population of the country, not just the state. And that's his job. Social criticism. And, you know, I really hope that you guys have seen that, or if you haven't, that you will watch Jammin' in New York 1992. It's really great. You know, he starts out going, yeah, big doings in the Persian Gulf, man. Big doings in the war since the last time I was up here. And, you know, he's at Madison Square Garden, I think. And the whole place just goes nuts for the war. And then he's just like, whatever, you people are absolutely crazy. And he just destroys them. And at the end, they know that they're all, not just wrong, but they were stupid to let horrible, evil, murderer Republicans tell them what to think. And he just destroys them. But boy, did they cheer. When he just said, hey, there was a war. They were like, yeah! They almost broke right into USA right there on the spot. And these are people who all paid money to go see Carlin. Who, by that time, had a reputation as being, you know, anti-establishment hippie type guy or whatever the hell. So you gotta figure, they're probably cooler than the average NYC audience or something, right? No. 
no doubt at all. But anyway, I love that clip, and I love the you know, and Carlin always said jamming in New York. That was he thought his best one ever. It was certainly the most important one. And I've said this before because it's true. Um, it was a big influence on me that one because that's the one that also ends with him ridiculing liberals, Volvo driving liberals and their recycling plastic bag drives and all of their crap. All their pretend uh, politically correct social progress through government programs and just, you know, the whole pretension. The world just needs more bicycle paths. The, the planet needs saving. All this kind of stuff. It's really great. And so, but the point is, is he just sets the example that it's perfectly easy, if you're George Carlin anyway, to have absolute equal and total disdain for the left and the right as far as, you know, their cultures, as far as the absolutely stupid things that they believe and do. And I first saw that, I think I was 14 or something, before anyone tried to make me buy in to liberalism or conservatism. So I just never did, thanks to that inoculation I got so young from George Carlin. I don't know. Might not have worked on me anyway, but... Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. So, yeah, man. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Libertarian foreign policy, mostly. Uh, Charlotte Silver coming up in just a few minutes for you here. Followed by Dan Sanchez. Uh, well, let's talk politics a little bit, I guess, because people like that. Uh, I hate Donald Trump. That's my disclaimer. Hate him. If you strapped him to the side of a rocket and blasted him off into space, I would go, oh, that's pretty cool. Okay. So, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, I love watching him punk Jeb Bush. Jesus Christ. I mean, have you ever seen anything in your life? Like Donald Trump punking Jeb Bush just day after day after day. And yesterday's wasn't that big of a deal, but still, I, I'm, I was literally laughing my ass off alone in a room reading about how JebBush.com had uh, been allowed to expire and Donald Trump bought it. Just give me your lunch money, bitch. <laughs> just every day, every day he just 
punks Jeb Bush. And as everyone keeps telling me on Twitter and an email, uh, and it's the same thing for me. It's really ugly and bad to be a bully like that, to pick on the weak like that. But then it's Jeb Bush. It's Jeb Bush. And for Donald Trump or for any man to take any Bush down that many pegs is just, you know, objectively, scientifically, mathematically hilarious. My mom is the strongest woman I know. Yeah, maybe she ought to run. Oh, man. Just just emasculate him day by day by day. Oh, yeah, you're so tef- tough, Jeb. I bet all the world leaders are scared to death of you. Just punks him day after day after day. And uh, most importantly on something that no one else on that level of politics would ever call him on. And that is the Bush family responsibility for 9-11 happening on their watch. Now, I know there are a lot of people, maybe including a lot of you, who see it as even a hell of a lot worse than that. But I would argue that the official record, and I never read the 9-11 Commission report because I didn't want to be confused by their propaganda, to paraphrase Ron Paul on a different issue. Um... But, uh, you know, I know enough about it, I guess. I know uh, from just reading the New York Times version of the story here, they were warned and warned and warned and warned, and they're guilty of 3,000 counts of criminally negligent homicide. As Sheldon Richmond puts it in his new piece, at the best interpretation you could possibly give them is that they were so distracted by Paul Wolfowitz saying, forget bin Laden, it's Saddam Hussein that's the real terrorist threat, that they just couldn't take al-Qaeda seriously. They demoted Richard Clark. The quote is Wolfowitz going, I don't know why we're talking about this one man. And Richard Clark going, it's not one man, it's the organization he leads. Man. And then Wolfowitz going, nuh-uh, because what about Saddam Hussein? Every cop, every spy, every actual professional in the country smacking themselves in the forehead like Bull Shannon on night court. Oh, man, not this BS with Saddam again, Wolfowitz. According to um, that jerk from Vanity Fair, uh, Kurt Eichenwall, I think it is, wasn't it him that wrote the thing for the New York Times that says he has seen 23 CIA morning reports for George Bush that warned of impending al-Qaeda attacks of, of, to one degree or another. Not just the August 6th, but 23 of them from the first months of that administration. And so Trump is just saying, just like he does, he says what we're all thinking. What do you mean Bush kept us safe? Oh, yeah, except that one worst attack in all of American history, which, by the way, you know, the American people, the opinion polls had Bush at 90-something percent after that. And it's the American people fell for this as bad as any Republican liar would have had you fall for it. Greatest failure of any political leader in America ever, and then he gets a 90% approval rating and a blank check to kill anyone he wants anywhere in the world from a supermajority of the American people. Incredible. And Trump just says... 
you know, this is like a ball game where you go, yeah, they scored 19 runs in the first inning, but after that, we played a real good game. You know what? Everybody understands the baseball analogy. I guess football would be a little bit more accessible, but that's pretty good. Are you bragging about your good game after they scored 19 runs in the first inning? And it's interesting, too, that he picked the number 19, huh? I wonder if that was just kind of a... I didn't even notice it till just now. Subtle kind of thing there. Um, But, uh, anyway, so the Bushes are just called out on that. And they, you know, how can they continue to exist? That 9-11 doesn't count. It's the next day that counts. Oh, yeah, and forget the anthrax attack. And forget Katrina. And forget the 4,500 guys uh, that were killed in Iraq and the uh, another few hundred under Bush in Afghanistan. The tens of thousands wounded. The tens of thousands who've killed themselves from the war guilt and the post-traumatic stress and coming home with no actual marketable skills, unlike the TV commercial promised. Um, yeah, but other than that, though, so that whole Bush kept a safe thing is just dead. And, and, you know, the media would have always let him get away with that. It took Donald Trump to say, uh, pardon me, I have a, there's a slight uh, error in your argument. TV would have never called him on it. Uh, and then he also called him out for lying us into war with Iraq. And unfortunately, he's already backed down from that and said, oh, I don't know if he lied or not. Which is too bad, because if he would just read up on it, he could be like, oh, hell yeah, let me tell you. Um, no doubt about it, no reason to back down whatsoever, but he did. And then, and that's just, you know, partially a reminder there of just how horrible Donald Trump really is. Avowedly pro-torture, saying waterboarding, which is not simulated drowning. Waterboarding is drowning. Waterboarding is where they drown you almost to death. In the words of the CIA... Till you're in the death spiral. And then they have an oxygen sensor on your finger that says when you're about to be all the way dead and then they flip you back upright, punch you in the stomach, empty your lungs of water, let you catch your breath, and then they do it again. They drown you to the brink of death over and over again. Oh, it's a dunk in the water. Kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, dunk in the water to the very brink of death over and over and over again. And here's Donald Trump tells NBC, that's not enough, not nearly tough enough for the torture that he's going to reinstitute when he's in power. Just like he flip-flopped the other day and, and now sides with Jeb and Hillary Clinton on creating a so-called safe zone in Syria, he says. You can flip-flop on any issue, just like Rand Paul, on any issue. A drop of a hat. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still. If you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking... Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security. The Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. 
Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, guys, welcome back. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. First up today is Charlotte Silver, uh, writing at Electronic Intifada, electronicintifada.net. That is, this one is titled, Israeli Court Refuses to Let Dying Hunger Striker Go. Welcome back to the show, Charlotte. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm real good. Appreciate you joining us here today. Uh, please tell us all about Mohammed Al, is it Kick? Al-Kik. Al-Kik. Right. So Mohammed um, is a 33-year-old journalist from the West Bank. Um, he's from he's he's from the Hebron area, but he's been living in Ramallah, and he um, is the father of two children. Um, and he was arrested last November um, in the middle of the night from his home, um, and um, Israeli soldiers sort of immediately started interrogating him, and according to his lawyers, um, um, interrogating him and torturing him, holding him in um, stress positions for um, full days, up to 18 hours a day, um, threatening him. Um, and they were, for, they, according to his wife and his lawyer, um, asking him, trying to get him to confess to um, participating in media incitement, which he refused to do. Um, after about four days of this treatment, he began his hunger strike. Um, it wasn't until three weeks later that he was um, placed under administrative detention. And administrative detention, um, as you probably know, is Israel's widespread practice that's been um, used increasingly over the last few months since um violence escalated in October, it's a practice of detaining Palestinians um, with no charge, um, no trial, and based on secret evidence. And um, so often it's used um, supposedly to prevent crimes. So um, Israeli security forces will um, allege that they, um, that the person that they're detaining hasn't committed a crime, but is about to commit a crime. Um, but um usually um but you know frequently these crimes that they allege are really based on such flimsy evidence that they wouldn't even stand up in a military court which has far lower standards than um civilian courts um mm -hmm. and in the case of Muhammad al-Kik the military court itself refused to allow charges to go forward against him and that's why he was placed under administrative detention um, 85 days later, he's been on hunger strike. He's consumed nothing but water for 85 days, um, and is um, he could die at any moment. Um, and they've said that for weeks, uh, for at least two weeks now. Um, so it's quite serious. And Israel's Supreme Court has um, continued to refuse to um, meet his demand, which is to be released to a hospital in the West Bank. All right. So, and, um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, um, you know, it's telling that the Supreme Court has, in, the, in its latest ruling, which again refused to meet his demand to, uh, to release him to the West Bank, they they said that there is evidence, again, this is secret evidence, but that they are sort of relaying to the press that is sufficient um, to prove that he is undeniably involved in some sort of terror 
um, in, in activities with Hamas. Um, but this is the Supreme Court saying this even after the military court said that they, there wasn't sufficient evidence to charge him, to, to try him. Um, so it seems like the Supreme Court is sort of the last bastion of Israel's military security establishment to maintain its practice, practice of administrative detention, which has been um, roundly condemned by, you know, not just human rights groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, but, um, you know, even in um, the State Department has indicated that administrative detention denies due process and it's, it's, it should be curbed. Right. Of course, you know, it goes without saying, although it shouldn't. <laughs> we need to be reminded of this all the time. The Constitution that created our government forbids our government from doing anything like this. The closest they can get away with is calling someone a witness that they need to protect. But even that can last for only a very short time. And we saw that mm-hmm. abused right after September 11th. But then the courts put a pretty quick end to it i think well i don't know i don't want to overstate that but at mm-hmm. least the justice department backed off their chargeless rounding up of muslims right. before it got too bad out of control i'm not trying to spin for for bush jr here but just compared to israel where this is the law of the land this is what they get to do they can just the cops can grab and arrest people and you're saying in this case the military court said we don't see enough evidence to hold him let him go so they said okay well forget military jurisdiction or the court's jurisdiction will just do administrative detention. So does that mean that it's it's the Shin Bet cops separate from the IDF that are holding him? Is that how that works? Or Well, well this is my news. I'm sorry. It's not the, really important. But. Um, no, well, the military court actually is the one that uh, um, uh, uh, ordered him to be placed under administrative detention. So oh, okay. the military court, but the military court said we wouldn't, we don't want to prosecute him and try him. And, you know, oh, but they were the same ones that said, but go ahead and hold him anyway. Exactly. I so, see. I mean, the, the military court isn't upholding any kind of um, higher rule of law than the Shin Bet. But um, it's just important to emphasize that the hunger strikes in Palestine are almost always conducted by um, people being held under administrative detention because it is literally the only recourse for someone to take um against their detention. I mean, the the Israeli military court system doesn't provide much um, judicial process for Palestinian um, defendants. And the majority are plea cases and, and very the standards of, of evidence are, are to, to convict are very low. Um, however, they at least um, present evidence against a defendant and the defendant has a chance if they wish to fight it um, to contest that evidence with administrative detention, there is there is no evidence presented. Um, sometimes there's vague um, references to the, the nature of the um, the concern about the defendant. I and mean, in this case, there has been um, unusual, a rare sort of references to why the you know so-called security establishment wants to keep Muhammad Al Kik um, detained, um, but but for the most part, people, you know, it's it's truly arbit. It, it, it is. If you think about it, it's you're being arrested and you're being held and you're not being told what evidence is against you and why you're being held. There's nothing you can do to fight it, and that's why you see um, time and again Palestinians was um, 
hunger take, taking up um, a hunger strike to protest it because what else can they do? Right. Well, and you know, the thing of it is, we just have to think about this story for a minute and we'll get back into more of the details on the other side of this break. But for the audience, just think for a moment if this was how the Chinese were treating the Uyghurs. Right. Or if mm-hmm. this was what Iran was doing to the Iranian Kurds or the Iranian Aziris or mm-hmm. or some minority in their country, this would be absolutely condemned. It would be our State Department would be putting out press releases all day long. And you could probably find a good part of the defense establishment in D.C. trying to figure out how we could get a regime change based on this kind of lawlessness or, mm-hmm. you know ramping up of sanctions or some kind of punishment our government would be i'm not saying it's because they care i'm just saying if if they have a, a country that they're an adversary of if, if vladimir putin was doing this uh, mm-hmm. there would be you know they would never stop screaming there'd be absolute hell to pay this is the definition of tyranny being arrested on secret evidence and held indefinitely for pre-crimes where even your accusers accuse you of Thinking about doing something, uh, not even right. necessarily, you know, conspiring to do something, but they say planning, but they never have to prove it. And this is absolutely crazy. And then, you know, when we get back, we'll talk a little bit more as you do in the article, Charlotte, about, you know, coming for people in the middle of the night, just like the scare stories, the true scare stories about the Nazis and the Soviet mm-hmm. communists back in the days of 20th century totalitarianism. And that's how the people of the West Bank live. And the Americans need to know. Right back. Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Talking with Charlotte Silver about, uh, I guess, you know, as far as we know, he's still alive. This guy, uh, Muhammad Al-Kik, Al-Kik, uh, 85 days into a hunger strike here. And uh, the article, read the article at electronicintifada.net. Israeli court refuses to let dying hunger striker go. And Charlotte, you're saying here that on the 4th, they suspended his administrative detention. Mm -hmm. But so now the question is just which hospital he can go in. They're still controlling his every move and say he can only go to the hospital that they say, even though he has officially been released. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Uh. Not quite. He hasn't been officially released. The the order on the on February fourth, which suspended his administrative detention, it suspended his his administrative detention on the basis that he was so weak he no longer posed a threat. So the idea was that once he recovered to some extent, um, he could be placed 
under administrative detention again. Um, and that's exactly why they don't want, they then, um, in the article I, I wrote, um, a couple of days ago, they said, they re, they ruled again that they refused to release him to a West Bank hospital because they didn't want to have to deploy military force to arrest him again. I see. Um, they want to keep him in, in their hospital so that once he recovers, they can rearrest him there without a problem. Right. Um, in, in these phantom borders that Israel supposedly has. Um, and, um, you know, the, the Al-Makassid Hospital in East Jerusalem, the, the, it's a Palestinian hospital, and that's where the Supreme Court said he would be allowed to go to, um, has been raided multiple times, is extremely vulnerable to um, Israeli police raids, and patients are vulnerable to arrest. So it makes perfect sense that um, Al-Qiq wouldn't feel like he was under any less um, risk of arrest being moved there, transferred there in East Jerusalem versus where he's being held now in um, the north of Israel. Um, but it's also important to note that um, West Bank hospitals are also routinely raided. Um, they, 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 they aren't protected from Israeli militarism either. Yeah. Man, this is just crazy. And now, so we hardly ever hear about this, but is this a thing that happens very often that uh, Palestinian prisoners do these hunger strikes? Well, it, it is actually very common. Um, there are about four Palestinians currently hunger striking. Um, Al-Qiq has, has gotten the most attention, um, and it's hard to say why, um, why he has gotten the most attention. Um, he's definitely conducting an absolute strike, um, and that this is from multiple sources close to him in the hospital and his family that he has not consumed anything but um, but water, and he has also refused all treatment. And so his actual condition is um, is is mostly what what reports on his condition are mostly speculation because the the Israeli he's refused any um, doctors Israeli doctors from conducting any kind of examinations other than just observing him. Um, and so most recently, um, it was suspected that he may have had a heart attack, and um, because of the fact that he was in severe pain, but also different parts of his body had sort of changed color. Um, but they can't verify that. Um, and so, you know, what you, what we know about his health, um, is that he may, even at this point, even if the Supreme Court were, were to rule in his favor and the Supreme Court is the last, um, option for him, even if it were to reverse its previous rulings, um, the chances of his recovery are very small, um, and he he may not survive even once treatment were to begin. Yeah. Now, um, I guess just to help us understand, you know, why this level of desperation. Obviously, you know, you explain there with the uh, uh, being arrested with you know on secret evidence and no charges and held in this administrative detention in a way that we never tolerate in America, except for you know, Padilla and Almari, but otherwise we'd never tolerate that kind of thing around here. Um, but if someone is abducted by the Israelis and, and held in administrative detention like this, how long does that captivity typically last? Is it all over the place or is it typically a very long time or so short each time? order each, the maximum administrative detention order is six months. So Palestinians can be placed under administrative detention for anywhere between 
you know, one to six months, but that can be renewed indefinitely. And so there are Palestinian prisoners who've been held under administrative detention for years, um, and then some aren't. So it is all over the place. And um, for someone like Mohammed Al-Qiq, there's no reason to think that they, it wouldn't be renewed after six months. I mean, and, and, and all the language around administrative detention is really, it sort of reveals how, um, how meaningless it really is. Okay, so you're saying that right now the Supreme Court is um, asserting that without a doubt, Muhammad is involved in terrorism activities with Hamas. So is the idea that, but they're also saying he can be released May 1st. Um, about two weeks ago, they tried to get him to agree to end his hunger strike if they promised to release him on May 1st. So what happens on May 1st? He just magically stops being a threat, um, even though they're saying that there's evidence that he was involved in planning activities with Hamas. Um, it doesn't really make sense. And that's, um, and, and this is, this is always in, the, in these cases, there's, it never ever, it never makes sense. Security never really, um, is a reasonable justification for this practice, which is used, which is, um, which is used, um, right now there's 660 Palestinians being held, approximately 660 Palestinians being held under administrative detention. And even, um, Israel's former public security minister in 2012, after, um, a mass hunger strike, um, in Israeli prisons among Palestinian prisoners, um, he, the former uh, public security minister, said himself, we, we use this more than we need to, and we probably shouldn't. Um, and Self-licking ice cream cone, just like any other government program, right? Well, we have our administrative detention procedures really fine-tuned now. We'd hate to stop using them so much. But, yeah, you know, I would ask, I would just try to ask the, the uh, listeners again, try to imagine what kind of situation you would have to be in where you decide you're going to certainly risk suicide by starvation. Uh, you know, yeah. what, what kind of position would you have to be in to say, you know what, I mean, this is the only thing I can do to try to get anybody to pay enough attention, to care at all, to do anything about it. With your mm-hmm. one life that you got on this earth. That's what you're going to do is starve yourself to death. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the position the Israelis have put these people in. That's the point. Right. And I, but I also think it's important to, to, you know, place the responsibility of his death on this Israel Supreme Court, on Israel's military, on Israel's attorney general, who's fighting to keep him under administrative detention. I mean, these are the people who are holding this practice. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to deflect from their responsibility. I'm just saying that that's, no, you know, no, that's I, when when right. people hunger strike, it's because it's that bad. That's why. Mm-hmm. And even the Israel Supreme Court has has placed the blame on Al-Qiq if he dies. They've said, you've brought this on yourself, you know, in those exact words. And um, I think that you know, Israel's Supreme Court is bolstered by the fact that for the last several months, um, Israel's killed around 130 Palestinians, most of which haven't, you know, most of which are suspected of wanting to uh, to commit an attack. Um, you know, Israel's security establishment it has completely legalized and paved the road to 
kill Palestinians um, to prevent to prevent a crime in the future. And um, that's that's essentially what the Supreme Court is participating in with its rulings against Muhammad al-Qaeda. And now you're you're saying that they've they've ruled that it's okay to to kill Palestinians not in in immediate proportional self defense out in the field, but it's okay to kill them for pre crimes just as the same as it is to abduct them for pre crimes like this. No, I'm not saying the Supreme Court has ruled that. I'm oh, I'm sorry, that, I misunderstood you. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm I'm just referring to the over 130 Palestinians who've been shot dead. Um, mm-hmm. Since October. Oh, but yeah, in those cases, they always at least claim, oh, but she had a knife or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether they really did or not is mostly besides the point, I guess. All right, well, listen, uh, I really appreciate you coming back on the show. It's uh, very important work that you do covering these stories, Charlotte. Thank you so much, Scott. All right, so that is Charlotte Silver. She's at Electronic Intifada. With this one, Israeli court refuses to let dying hunger striker go. We'll be right back. Hey, Al Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. Hey, you own a business? Maybe we should consider advertising on the show. See if we can make a little bit of money. My email address is scott at scotthorton.org. All right, you guys, welcome back. Yeah, I'm Scott. It's my show, The Scott Show. I'm here on the Liberty Radio Network, noon to 2 Eastern Time. On the weekdays, Sunday mornings on KPFK in L.A. All right, uh, next up is Dan Sanchez. Uh, writing at antiwar.com, a regular contributor. He and Sheldon uh, Richmond are both uh, our newest regular contributors at antiwar.com. This one is called Israel and Syria. Plan B is to balkanize. Welcome back to the show, Dan. How are you? Well, it's great to be with you, Scott. Uh, very good to have you here. And, uh, you know, I recommend your articles to people all the time because I think they're really good. And they ask oh, me sure. things and I go, you know what you should do? Here, read this. And they go, oh, thanks. I get you it know, now. That's what I try for. There, there are some issues where there's no definitive, thorough statement of the important details. And so sometimes when I come across an issue, I just, in my head, like, you know, maybe I should write that <laughs> since it doesn't exist. Exactly. It's the entrepreneurial spirit, you know. Ha! Huh. A place in the market where I might could uh, fill a gap here. Absolutely. <laughs> and... um in fact, I'll go ahead as long as uh, we're talking about it. I'm patting you on the head and everything. Uh, from uh, Clean Break to Dirty Wars and um, uh, Seize the Chaos. Those are the two that I like the best that I'm always recommending uh, more than the rest. But there's a, a lot of other great ones. Uh, everyone check them out at uh, original.antiwar.com slash Dan underscore Sanchez or just check the right margin there at antiwar.com. So anyway, uh, this is along the same lines as those again. Uh, Israel uh, and Syria. And so uh, you, the subtitle here is Yanan to Yalan. So, or I don't know, is it Yalan? 
I'm, um, um, there's no apostrophe, but I don't really speak Hebrew very well. Anyway, uh, Moshe Yalon, who's he? And what did he say that you thought was so interesting, Dan? He's the defense minister of Israel. And the thing that he said that was so interesting is that he uh, endorsed a partition of Syria. You see, there's a war in Syria, uh, and it's um, a civil war, but it's also a, um, a budding world war um, it, uh, involving the U.S. and Russia, uh, countries in the Middle East, countries in Europe. It's really quite a conflagration. And um, he thought that a partition might be a good um, plan B. Now, we know it's his plan B because, as um, Michael Oren always reiterates whenever anyone goes off script, um, plan A is Assad must go, that, um, that they, want re- uh, they want regime change in, uh, in, in Syria. And, um, <clears throat> and so it's, it's interesting that he would choose now for, for this plan B uh, because it, it just so happens that, the, that there's sort of a turning point in the war that um, uh, that Russia and um, uh, uh, Russian airstrikes plus um, plus uh, Shiite militia and uh, Syrian government and um, uh, and Hezbollah uh, ground operations have really got the uh, the, the, the rebel- rebels in a corner and um, and in, in fact um, Aleppo uh, it seems to be almost like a last stand situation in the city of Aleppo, which is the second biggest city in Syria. And, um, and so it is now that he is saying, well, you know, let's do this. Let's, let's have a partition. Now, what's interesting about that is that it's not the first time he's floated this idea. There was an interview in 2013 where he also talked about maybe it would be a good idea to have a partition. And the way he, uh, the context that he gave it is that, you know, it's kind of artificial what Syria is now anyway. Um, after all, it was sort of um, just carved up, uh, uh, just sort of um, uh, a compromise between diplomats uh, sitting at, Western diplomats sitting at a table after World War One, And that was the creation of Syria. There was the Sykes-Picot Treaty. And, um, and so it's, you know, it's really very artificial. So, you know, we shouldn't be too wedded to it. And so, um, so we might as well, um, we might as well just uh, create a, a partition. Well, yeah. And so, you know, the level of cynicism here is <laughs> it's just amazing. Um, but, you know, I guess that should be the least of it. But, um, you know, the thing of it is that there really doesn't seem to be, well, like, for example, the, the leaders of Syrian Kurdistan now, you know, I don't know how likely they are to want to go back under the control of Damascus. But on the other hand, 
it seems like that the possibility that that could be negotiated certainly exists. Their leaders are on the record saying that they, you know, don't want to be under Damascus, but they don't want to see Assad fall because of what would happen to everybody else who his state is protecting right now from the Al Nusra Front and and the uh, ISIS guys. And so, you know, the idea that, oh, well, you know, geez, I guess it'll just have to be broken into its smallest pieces because some major proportion, I guess, although I doubt it's a majority of the Sunni population is backed by a bunch of foreign powers is at war with everybody else. So, you know what I mean? It's like the the kind of pretenda riot in Tahir Square in June of 2013, right before they canceled the revolution and and um, and al-Sisi declared his military dictatorship, where, you know, they said, oh, no, we have to prevent a civil war and all this. But they were preempting something that was not really going on. The the what was going on in Tahrir Square at the time was more like festivities than a a riot and another revolution, you know. Um, and same kind of thing here. Like, oh, geez, things in Syria are going so bad. I guess we should just do everything we can to completely destroy it. What's left of it? And destruction is the name of the game. That uh, it is exactly as cynical as you might imagine, um, because this is. Um, what, I mean, you can imagine that what the plan could be is balkanization, like um, like I say in my uh, in the title of my article, um, that like you say, the smallest possible uh, um, units. That you know, if you balkanize the country in that way, you can see how strategically uh, Israel might want its neighbors to be shattered into a thousand pieces. And, um, um, so, and and that it, there's a. a, a long heritage of this strategy you know what save that for the next segment because and because there's a lot to discuss there that we don't have time to discuss before this uh coming break but i just wanted to to talk about or or you know ask you to talk about what happens if they can do this like they did in the balkans where uh they come in and draw with a black magic marker over what were sort of kind of de facto lines between uh, ethnic factions or religious factions or however you do it. Uh, but then once they take a black magic marker and say these are now real borders, and doesn't that leave so many people on the wrong sides of those lines and subject to that much more violence then? Well, that's exactly the issue. I mean, that's why it's so unbelievably arrogant uh, of, of, of Moshe Yalan to say, oh, okay, we're going to get rid of the old Sykes Pico, and we're going to have this like more refined Sykes Pico because still it's going to be outsiders with holding the magic markers and, and carving things up. And the thing is, is that because it's outsiders doing it, and it's not self determination, that it's going to be chaos. And we don't know exactly how it's going to be chaos. We don't know who's going to come out on top or or anything like that. But the thing is that. Outsiders don't have the incentive. They don't have the on-the-ground knowledge to, to make compromises. Because like you say, even with uh, smaller circles with the magic marker, the thing is, is that within those circles, there's still going to be lots of different, lots of diversity. There's still going to be different nations right. within those circles, and they can, they can fight just as, 
as much as the fighting is going on right now. All right, hold and it so there, Dan. We gotta we gotta take this break. We'll be right back with Dan Sanchez from AntiWar.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. If this nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone, we are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Uh, I'm talking with Dan Sanchez about this piece, Israel and Syria. Plan B is to balkanize. And again, you know, it is a complicated mess. It's hard for anybody to give any kind of summary. But, you know, in the war there, um, as I think is so often said, nobody really likes Assad, the dictator himself. Um, But... Everyone, all as far as you, not every individual, but as far as you could characterize the different ethnic and religious factions that live in Syria, they all back the regime against uh, Arar al-Sham al-Nusra, uh, the Islamic State, and for that matter, the rest of the so-called you know, mythical moderate jihadists who are the same damn thing anyway. And I, it's not even clear at all that the majority of Sunnis are on their side. Um, I don't, in fact, I don't think that they are. Um, mostly this is a project by the United States, Turkey, Qatar, and Israel to, uh, attempt or at least push a half a regime change. I think Saudi, Israel, and Turkey wanted a full one. America went for a half a one here for the last five years. Uh, let them hemorrhage to death, as the Israelis put it in the New York Times. Keep both sides bleeding and hemorrhaging to death um, over the long term. And so uh, that's important because what we're talking about is the Israeli defense minister, defense minister pretending that, yeah, we're just going to have to completely create, you know, break up. And make uh, Alawi stan, Syrian Kurdistan, Syrian Druze stan, and he might as well have gone on to say, and why not new states for the Marianites, the Assyrians, and the Chaldean Christians, too? As long as he's just making up stuff, let's just pretend that all these factions all hate and want to kill each other because they have uh, different religious beliefs. What a ridiculous lie. And he's so far out ahead of his own narrative. It's completely ridiculous here. Uh, and he, But he's given away the game. And the game is... Is destroy it all, and that's where we were interrupted at the break there, Dan. So go back and tell them how it got to be this way. Okay. Well, first of all, one important distinction is that um, when you say Sunnis and the majority of Sunnis, that uh, you, we need to distinguish between majority of, of local Sunnis and, and, um, and versus the uh, the foreigner Sunnis, because uh, a lot of the forces, a lot of the rebel forces, are are. Foreigners, they're from Saudi Arabia, from other other countries right. in in the Middle East, and um, and and that's the issue that um, that you bring up is is very important because that's what he wants us to think is that it's uh, just sort of an, um, a a re- purely religious conflict uh, that that uh, and it's it's um, it has nothing to do with interventions that have been done in the past o- over ten years um, that um, and. And so um, it's really uh, problematic because in uh, in the 1980s, um, 
that there was a document called the uh, called the Yanan Plan. Well, it's known as the Yanan Plan, and it, it uh, Oded Yanan wrote uh, something very similar to what you just said. It, it, it almost sounded like you were you were reading it. Um, he said Syria will fall apart in accordance with its ethnic and religious structure into several states, such as in present-day Lebanon, so that there will be a Shiite Alawi state along its coast a Sunni state in the Aleppo area, another Sunni state in Damascus hostile to its northern neighbor, and the Druzes who will set up a state, maybe even in our Golan, and certainly in the Haran and in northern Jordan. And so that is from 1982. <laughs> that is not uh, the, the quote that we're, that we're, we're talking about before. Um, so what, what he's, uh, what, the reason why they think that, um, that the, the Alawis Will break apart. So the, um, the Shiite Alawis are, are, are the governing um, religious sect. That Assad is is an Alawite, and uh, it's very much uh, a minority. And um, and Aleppo is the city that we're talking about, and uh, uh, being at the crossroads and um, being sort of a, a last stand for the Sunnis. And so that's why he, he's thinking a Sunni state in the Aleppo area. Um, another Sunni state in, in Damascus, which is the capital, and, um, and to its northern neighbor, the, the Druzes, who were sort of the uh, puppet sect for Israel in the Lebanon, the Israel-Lebanon war. And so this, it, it's, um, it's really, um, they, they're hoping that, um, that this sectarian divide will uh, be real and it's almost like they're believing their own lies because uh, that was um, uh, David Wormser's whole theory too. That that it's it's rife, it's ready to fall, it's all sectarian. They're all, they're they're at each other's throats. That that um, you know that Saddam and Assad that that they're the only thing keeping each other uh, from each, each other's throats. And and once we knock them out, you know they're. It'll just unleash them, and then it'll all it'll all become balkanized. And, and that great, was, tell them who's David Wormser. Uh, David Wormser is a neocon, a neoconservative. Um, I think a dual citizen uh, is Israel in in U.S. And he was an official in the Bush administration. Uh, he kind of floated from department to, de- to department. He was at state. He was at the Pentagon. Uh, he he was kind of everywhere. Uh, and um, he wrote two strategy documents, and these are the documents that you were br- brought up earlier uh, uh, regarding my articles. Uh, I wrote A Clean Break to Dirty, to, to Dirty Wars and Seize the Chaos. And so those two articles are about these documents where he um, talked about um, what Israel's policy vis-a-vis the Middle East. And the second one is where he really outlines the balkanization uh, strategy, that he wanted to expedite the chaotic collapse, is the way he put it. And um, and so it was shortly after that that uh, the neocons um, really started pushing through uh, the project for a new American century uh, throughout, the, throughout the Clinton administration uh, to... Um, knock out Saddam as the first domino that they thought would eventually balkanize the entire Middle East. Well, and you know, it's interesting to me about that Yanan plan, that if you read it, this guy's an insane lunatic, and he's completely wrong. He sounds like the most paranoid um, kind of right-winger 
about the the near and medium term future. I mean, humanity is doomed. The Soviet communists are going to rule the whole world. The U.S., I guess, and England will be will just fall or be out of the picture. Then it'll be poor little Israel against the world, you know, and. Yeah, boy, were, was he just pessimistic about the situation that they were in. And it's funny in a horrifying way to me to think of just the counterfactual. If they had not been stuck in their own narrative this whole time and recognized that, you know what, they could get along with the people of the Middle East just as well as they get along with the dictators of the Middle East if they would just quit their perpetual war against the people of Palestine, Lebanon, etc., and and unlike that clean break policy of we must just maintain full scale dominance, if instead they had a policy of hey let's more or less try to get along with our neighbors after all we got to live here for a long long time and things like that, it would probably work just fine. Uh, there's no reason to think that it wouldn't. Again, um, you know as we've discussed on this show before. All of the Arab states uh, either recognize Israel or are willing to recognize Israel if they'll get out of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, And that includes the Palestinian Authority, and that even includes Hamas, for Christ's sake. (laughs) You know? So they're carrying out this plan as though they're still living in this, you know, nightmare dystopia that they had predicted back, you know, 35 years ago. But they're not. They don't live there. They live here. Yeah, and the, what's really amazing is that if they think that they uh, if if they think that they're going to just uh, ride this out, that they could just sow chaos throughout the entire Middle East and and just ride it out, uh, that that it leads to thinking about Netanyahu's recent statement where he's where he talked about building a, a huge wall. Uh, and um, just to, he, he actually used the word to keep keep the savage beasts out. That um, and you get the same uh, that the Yalan uh, gave the same uh, sentiment um, in in the, his recent quote, and um, it, it's really a, a paranoia, and and I think the paranoia is based on the occupation. Ultimately, it, it, the occupation of the Palestinians, that that is the telltale heart uh, that is driving Israel mad, that, that it's, the, um, it, it's the issue that makes them uh, want to shatter anything that looks like it could conceivably be a threat any time in the future. Um, so, so they would rather have um, a jihadistan all around them or they uh, or they would like puppets. Like I say, puppet is plan A, uh, jihadistan is plan B. Yeah. But what they never want is any kind of Arab nationalism. Arab nationalism, they think, will eventually lead to some to to a concentrated, effective opposition to the the occupation. And as you say in your previous piece, I mean, David uh, Wormser is absolutely explicit about this, that, you know what, if the trade-off is a bunch of bin Ladenites, I don't care. Exactly. It's right there in there. All right, listen, i got to let you go because I'm over time. Thanks so much for coming back on the show, Dan. You're great. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. All right, y'all, that is Dan Sanchez. So um, from clean break to dirty wars, seize the chaos and a whole bunch more, but also, you know, one, two, skip a few. This one is Israel and Syria. Plan B is to balkanize. It's on antiwar.com right now. So go and look at it, and we'll be back in a minute.
Hey, I'll Scott here. On average, how much do you think these interviews are worth to you? Of course, I've never charged for my archives in a dozen years of doing this, and I'm not about to start. But at patreon.com slash Show, you can name your own price to help support and make sure there's still new interviews to give away. So what do you think? Two bits? A buck and a half? They're usually about 80 interviews per month, I guess, so take that into account. You can also cap the amount you'd be willing to spend in case things get out of hand around here. That's patreon.com slash Show. And thanks, y'all. All right, kiddos, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. Yeah, I went overtime into the break there with uh, Dan Sanchez for a minute. I hope you guys like that stuff. It's good stuff, man. Read Dan, man. All right, now, so before I was talking about Donald Trump and torture and how he's just devoutly pro-torture and, boy, drowning people almost to death over and over again, that's nothing compared to what the hell I'm going to do to him. With my burning hot pliers. <laughs> what? I mean, Jesus Christ, dude. Uh, I mean, I made up that part, but I think you get it. Uh, he did say it's not enough. I got, let me just page down my tweet here. I'll get you a god dang exact quote. Not nearly tough enough. Waterboarding. Not nearly tough enough. So. Anyway, the thing of it is this. If you read this article by Nat Perry at consortiumnews.com called New GOP Plans for Torture, you will say to yourself something to the effect of, My God, man, what have we become? Now, what are they? A bunch of savages. That's what they are, the Republicans. They're just, they're completely out of their minds. Uh, the whole lot of them. And, um, you know, Trump is the most avowed about it. It's all part of his alpha male act. He pulls it off wonderfully. You know, the, the, uh, they're surprised that, uh, you know, the, the pundits on Twitter are surprised to see that it doesn't hurt. I was surprised too, but now I understand. Uh, they're surprised to see that Trump can denounce the Iraq war that all these right wingers supported and they still love him anyway. But the deal is, it's because it's all part of his alpha male act. As long as the bottom line is, because he's bigger, tougher, and smarter than you, then they go for it anyway. And of course, his real point is, he's bigger, tougher, and smarter than Jeb, because he realizes these other guys aren't really a threat to him at the end of the day. But Jeb is, because Jeb has the other billionaire's money behind him. So he's got to continually tear Jeb down. But, uh, so, whether he says this, that, or the other thing, whether he's opposing the Iraq war, whether he's supporting torture, as long as he's doing it more than everybody else, it still works to send the same message. See, I'm looking at it like the master persuader instead of on two dimensions, three, just like a, a Dilbert cartoon reader would, I guess. Um, and yeah, it's working. Um, but now here's the thing, Ramondo, uh, yeah, he's flip flops back and forth on these things. Currently he has somewhat of a soft spot for Trump. So he tweeted back at me, uh, this morning, start torture again, restart torture as though it ever stopped. And of course he's right about that. Obama has been torturing people. He's torturing people. First of all, just simply by holding them without trial at Guantanamo. Never even mind the American prison system. For, we're talking about the national security state for the for these purposes. 
solitary in, in federal prison is a separate issue, but same thing, kind of. But um, people being held, people being cleared for release and held anyway without charges for years, Israel style down in Guantanamo Bay, that's torture. It'd be torture if they did it to you, wouldn't it? So it's torture when they do it to somebody else, too. You see how that works? And one standard will be fine, please. And, of course, we know that when John McCain passed the Detainee Treatment Act in 2005, that he amended it for Dick Cheney and uh, exempted the CIA. It only bound the military, not the CIA, to the military's field manual for how to conduct interrogations. But then McCain also allowed for the field manual to be amended itself to include stress positions, temperature manipulations, and uh, I'm not sure what else. It's There are a couple other things. Not the worst tortures, but then again, keeping you really, really, really cold for a very long time, keeping you tied to a chair quite uncomfortably for hours on end. I think sleep deprivation is in there, too. Uh, and they continued in the Obama years to do this stuff to the people at the separate, wink-wink, sort of semi-secret prison at the Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan, and including brought people from around the world who had never even been to Afghanistan, who had nothing to do with the Afghan so-called battlefield whatsoever. Even though that war was won in October 2001, so how is it still a battlefield, huh? Anyway. Um, but, so, yeah. Absolutely, uh, Barack Obama is guilty of torturing people. I think not as bad as Bush. But then again, it's secret. We don't know what CIA black sites there are in the world right now. We don't know what's going on at various Navy ships on the high seas. We don't know what's going on in Morocco or Poland or Thailand or anywhere else where George W. Bush was torturing people. Because it's secret. I would go ahead and presume them guilty, especially considering that on Obama's first day in power, when he announced torture was illegal, he didn't announce it was illegal. He said, I'm issuing an executive order ordering the CIA to not torture people and lawyer language, lawyer language, leaving loopholes. He didn't say, I'm ordering all executive employees to recognize the fact that torture is illegal under American law, and it long has been. And for the military, it's been illegal since George Washington. And so there should be no question about this ever. If you torture somebody, I'll put you in prison for the rest of your life. That wasn't the order. The order was, I have now made a policy call that we will torture people less somewhat using the CIA. But very vague. I, I believe he left it open for contractors, left it open for JSOC or who knows who. And uh, explicitly was invoking his own authority as the president uh, to make these decisions, just as Bush had done, just to make a different decision. Rather than referring to the rule of law in the U.S. Constitution, which, for example, in Amendment 8 forbids the government from ever exercising any such torture powers because it doesn't have them. It really bans them in the Fifth Amendment, too, from doing it. That self-incrimination ban, that's a protection from torture, of course, right there. That's what it's for, anyway. So, yeah, Ramondo's right. 
Just Trump is promising to be even worse. I think the point Romano makes about torture all the time is as long as you're at war, there's going to be torture, legal or not, legal or not, avowed or not. It's still a subset of the war itself, and it's unavoidable. You know, there are, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoons about World War II where wars are all fought on the up and up. But other than that, they're not. That's the real truth right there, you know? Yeah. Okay. Um, yats. I should play my yats soundbite whenever I talk about yats. Yeah, well, I'm not winning anybody over these lousy production values, am I? I think yats is the guy. So, uh, yeah, Yats is the guy, man. He is still the prime minister. The president, Poroshenko, called for a no-confidence vote, although it, the way I read about it this morning, it looked like it was a ploy to prevent a further one. Uh, he, I think they knew that they didn't have the votes for a no-confidence vote, so they called for it now because pressure was building, and if they have, if he survives the no-confidence vote now, then they can't vote again until July. That's what I read this morning at uh, foreignpolicy.com. And what's funny about that, too, is the way he talks about, what does he call here? Oh, this leaves the fate of a much-needed $17.5 billion. When did it used to be 15? Him. <clears throat> $17.5 billion international rescue loan <laughs> from the International Monetary Fund very much in the air. Oh, no. How are we going to put the dead-ass broke people of Ukraine on the hook for $17.5 billion? If we can't get stability going in our sock puppet coup d'etat Nazi-backed regime in Kiev. Wonder. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. I mean, come on, that's pretty much the only way I can get away with playing Slayer on the show, right? Yeah. All right. I mean, I could, but you'd probably go, well, my ears. All right. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Uh, yeah, so I talked about Obama, the torturer. I talked about Yats being the guy. Uh, there's a big Apple thing where Apple's standing up to the feds and not creating a backdoor to the iPhone of the uh, San Bernardino shooters. iPhones, I guess I should say. Or is it just the his phone? Uh, anyway, boy, the FBI decided that uh, they're going to use this as the cudgel to destroy all our privacy with. And Apple is saying, you know what? Gotta have encryption, man. Our customers demand encryption. And if we bow down to the feds on this, then, uh, you know, everyone will be compromised. Everyone. So we can't. February 16th, 2016, a message to our customers at apple.com. should read it. It's good. I actually only read about half of it so far. Uh, I saw a tweet by a knowledgeable tech wag who said, 
hey, when Google is silent on this, that means they've taken a side and it's not yours, pal. So, uh, we'll see how it goes. And you know, it could be that this is all a dog and pony show because they already do have a back door. And Apple is just saying, hey, listen, feds, you have to at least let us pretend to put up a fight here. I don't trust them. Do you trust them? We'll see how it goes. I, one good thing about the tech stuff is that there are enough. I'm not one of them. There are enough level 20 computer genius types who can see through a lot of crap a lot of times. You know, they found in the Windows operating systems, NSA key, this and that back doors and secret folders that save all your emails and web searches and forward them on and this kind of thing. They find that stuff, man. They bust them. So there's a, a little bit of checks and balances in there uh, just because people who aren't even necessarily ideological but are just, you know, autistic as hell in a good way with the, you know, numbers and letters, the numbers especially, uh, you know, end up nailing under the wall with the facts. So we'll see what happens, but... I don't trust. Uh, but you can read about it if you go look. All right. So then I got to talk about, uh, oh, there's so many different things I want to talk about, but uh, Hillary Clinton, she's one of them. So um, this one I'll only just mention really quick because, hey, it's important, kind of. At least 1,666 Clinton emails contain classified material. 1,600 of them. I don't care. I don't think the U.S. government should exist. I don't think they have a right to keep secrets. Screw them. But I do think that it's worthy of note that lesser State Department or Defense Department or uh, other executive branch officials who leak secrets like this or even you know store secrets in unsecured places like this, they get nailed to the wall. And there's a million of them, but the one that always comes to mind is the guy that sent a selfie to his girlfriend from a Navy ship, or it might have been a sub. But he had a radar, out of focus, had a radar screen in the background. Uh-uh, pal. That is secure information. You are not allowed to take pictures of that. You go to prison. He wasn't spying for the Russians. He didn't mean to do anything wrong. He made a stupid idiot mistake and took a selfie in a place where he should have been facing the other way. Nail him. To prison you go. And there's a million of them like that. And Obama has prosecuted more executive branch officials than all the other presidents combined since Woodrow Wilson with the Espionage Act of 1917, calling leakers and whistleblowers, accusing them of committing espionage. And that goes all the way down to dozens and dozens of, of officials who made mistakes or, you know, we're deliberately careless. Oh, well, I can put these secrets on my laptop because I feel like it. What's anybody going to do about it? But not because they're working for China or whatever. Still, they get nailed. Hillary Clinton, she's just walking proof that there's really no such thing as the rule of law. Oh, there are laws, and they'll nail you with them. I'm not saying you're free. I'm just saying uh, people with political power, with real political power, they're not subject to the law. They can break the law. I mean, just think about how absolutely absurd it is. Just think how absurd it is, the possibility that she would be indicted and prosecuted and convicted and sent to prison for this. 
you and I know there is less than no chance of that happening. It's just not going to happen, no matter what. And no matter if they find evidence of her writing, what the hell do I care about classification? I'm Hillary Rodham Clinton. I can do whatever I want and no law can touch me, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. She had pictures of North Korean nuclear facilities taken from outer space on her server. It doesn't matter. For me to even bring up the possibility, I mean, doesn't that sound absolutely ridiculous to you? That she could actually get in trouble for this? Right. Never going to happen. Okay, sorry. Uh, By the way, here's her daughter saying that Bernie Sanders' plan to end mass incarceration is worrying. You hear that, poor people and black people and brown people and white people? You're going to jail. Spend some time in the pokey. Because, hey, it's good for business. Uh, of course, the Clintons, uh, Hillary Clinton herself, she's been under pressure to return donations from the prison companies who are relying on her. Man, she's a sound investment. Oh, now all of a sudden this is political. And now Bernie Sanders, and there's video of him uh, in 96. He actually voted for the crime bill. There's video of him railing against it and all the sentencing in there. And it's really great video. I mean, his speech against the crime bill of, I guess it was 94. Um, it's really great. Oh, or maybe it might have been the, um, it might have been the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 96. I think it was the crime bill of 94. Anyway. So Chelsea Clinton is saying, oh, his plan to end mass incarceration is worrying. So she's trying to hit your fear of, oh, they're going to let all the black people out of prison, and then what's going to happen to us? But then when you let her elaborate a little bit, she goes, well, because, you know, there are 50 states, and most of these prisoners are in state prisons, and the president can't really do anything about that. So what does he think he is, a king? Sounds like a terrible usurpation of states' rights, everybody cried Hillary Clinton. Huh? I'm sorry. Chelsea Clinton, Hillary's daughter. <laughs> um, and of course, that's literally true. Of course, it's also true that he could absolutely end the drug war on a national level, and he could absolutely inform the states that the national government is no longer aiding and abetting their drug wars and that it's time to wind this whole thing down, and you guys make more money legalizing pot anyway, and then use the money to treat heroin addicts, you know, and get them on methadone and whatever. Come on, man. Grow up. Snap out of it. He could do all that easily as the President of the United States. Just tell the 50 states that, come on, man, this is stupid. You're wasting money. You're at war against your own people. It's ridiculous. These are your neighbors, man. Stop it. And and if he was the president and he was talking like that, it would, I mean, it's already being done. Drugs are already being decriminalized. Um, sentences reduced and this kind of thing. The ball's rolling. If a president was behind that, really, and meant it and pushed it, make all the difference in the world. He wouldn't need to usurp the power of the 50 states and force them somehow. But anyway, that's not what Hillary Clinton, I mean, sorry, that's not what Chelsea Clinton, who obviously had this orchestrated with her family. That's not what she meant. 
What she meant was, are you afraid that all the black criminals, that Bernie's going to let them all out of jail and that they're going to hurt you and take your stuff away from you? Bernie Sanders' plan to end mass incarceration is worrying. And and no, those are not quotes, and I'm not pretending those are quotes. I'm saying that's the subtext. That was the message. And then she goes on to say, oh yeah, no, it's worrying because it sounds like royalism. Really? Like Paul Begalis said uh, back in the 90s in the Clinton administration, executive orders are great. Stroke of the pen, law of the land. Pretty cool, huh? Oh, yeah. No, now it's Bill and Hillary Clinton and their daughter, Chelsea, who are the champions of decentralization. Well, they're four states' rights when it comes to locking black folks in prison, I guess. We can give them that if they'll take it as credit. We'll go ahead and blame them. 